Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, Charlotte Dennett is a former Middle East reporter, investigative journalist, and attorney. She is the co-author of Thy Will Be Done, The Conquest of the Amazon, Nelson Rockefeller, and Evangelism in the Age of Oil. And she is the author of the new book we will be discussing, The Crash of Flight 3804, A Lost Spy, A Daughter's Quest, and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil. Charlotte Dennett, welcome. Welcome back to Talk Nation Radio. Great to be on. Uh, thanks for coming. Thanks for writing this terrific book. Uh, let's talk first about your your father, who plays a big role in this book. Who was your father? Um, my father was uh, stationed in Beirut, Lebanon, where I was born um, during World War II, and he he served as the cultural attache for the State Department, but that was his cover. He was actually um, working for the Office of Strategic Services, that's the OSS, and later the Central Intelligence Group, both of which were precursors to the CIA. So uh, by the time that he died in a mysterious plane crash in March of 1947, he was the only master spy for the whole Middle East, and and he is uh, on the on the wall of the the dead heroes at the CIA as the first star of a dead uh, CIA person, right? <laughs> yes, that, that's true. Uh, that happened only recently. Um, I had uh, I, my whole case. I, I sued the CIA uh, under FOIA for more documents on my father. That was in uh, back in 2007. It went public through the New York Times, did a story on it. And uh, not long afterwards, I learned that a tribute had been done on my father as somebody who was highly regarded during his time and somehow had missed being acknowledged by the CIA as one of its fallen, quote, heroes. And... Um, and then I, nothing much came of that. It, it was a very nice tribute, and you know, I, I felt that he should be honored. Frankly, I, I, I have been quite critical of the CIA in my past writings, um, but in in delving into my father's life uh, and death, I, I came to understand that in those early days, uh, the agency was populated by. Uh, some rather idealistic individuals. Uh, he greatly believed in democracy. He was an Arab scholar, uh, and so he he spoke Arabic and he understood Islam. and And he's even highly regarded today. As one of his books, "Conversion and Poll Tax in Early Islam," is still in print and still taught. So I I was just thinking that I needed to know more about him. Yeah, and that's how I got into this whole question of pipelines. Well, we because still... his last mission was to Saudi Arabia to chart the route of the Trans-Arabian Pipeline that was going to carry precious oil uh, to a terminal point on the eastern Mediterranean shores, and from there it would be shipped off, the oil would be shipped off to Europe, and it would be used to help finance the Marshall Plan, it was very crucial to the recovery of uh, Western nations. So... 
that got me started. It, it, it's, you know, it's no secret, I think, Charlotte, that I would like to see the CIA abolished and wish it had never been created. Uh, and yet we have great peace activists like Ray McGovern that have come out of there. We have uh, whistleblowers like Jeffrey Sterling who, who go into the CIA, you know, right up to this day with all the best intentions and idealism. Uh, it, it, so I think uh, there's plenty to be learned from individuals within the CIA. And, and this book book is so well done because it's at the same time an investigation of what your father might have been doing and how and why he died uh, and a survey of uh, of the Middle East and of the the role of pipelines. I mean what is what is the importance of of fossil fuel pipelines to US foreign policy and and wars and coups and alliances and sanctions? <laughs> well well put. Uh, well look People think about um, how we rely on oil, and there's two things that people usually mention. Oil is necessary uh, for our industries and for heating and for cars. But one aspect of oil that hardly ever gets discussed is it is the major fuel of the military. So when you start to understand its role, then you began to understand why there's such intense competition for oil. Because even if you don't need it at a given time, you will think that you'll need it down the road. Or if you aspire to be a major power, you want to be sure that you're going to be able to fuel your military and uh, control the, the oil. And one of, one of the big lessons of Germany was that in World War One its lorries ran out of gas, and that's a major reason it lost. And it was something that Hitler never forgot. In fact, he started to in, uh, invest in um, synthetic oil. At any event, so that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is oil in the ground is not terribly useful in terms of profits. Um, it's got to be distributed. And how does it get distributed? It gets distributed by tankers, but also by oil pipelines. And so uh, that turned out to be a very lucrative aspect of the oil industry. That also is often not acknowledged. The distribution of oil is as important as the control of oil. So, therefore, when I started looking at the Trans-Arabian Pipeline, I read some, a wonderful article in the New York Times uh, March 2nd, 1947, that described the geopolitics around this pipeline. I mean, it was the cause of great international intrigue. And once I really dug into that, and that's in the first chapter of my book, I began to think about it more, especially as, as the war in Iraq started to happen in 2003. And the more I dug into the war in Iraq, I found there was a pipeline connection to that particular war, and also the war in Afghanistan, which we can go into if you want. But anyway, pretty soon I became what I call a pipeline tracker, and I began to see these connections. It's, it's quite astonishing, and there are a few of us. I think I think you've joined the ranks, David, with your new piece, which is well done. Uh, understanding the role of pipelines in endless wars. And uh, there's a few of us, but I hope there are many more and so that we can start to avoid endless wars. 
And, and you really trace the history of of the role of pipelines uh, in determining uh, wars and and foreign relations uh, back to the back to its origins, even pre origins with the the Baghdad to Berlin railroad. But but it's 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 Winston Churchill's decision, isn't it, uh, that that critically decides to to move the British Navy onto onto oil, uh, and, and so it's the fueling of a military uh, that drives the military interest in the fuel. I mean, we, we do know which came first here, the chicken or the egg, right? Yeah, yeah, no, you've, you've absolutely got that right. And, and the Berlin, this is an interesting little story, the Berlin to Baghdad Railroad, I didn't know anything about it. But one of the puzzles that I had, and I weave this into the book, is how did my family get involved in the Middle East anyway? I really wasn't sure about that. Uh, my mother had passed away before I could ask her as a young woman, and my father was dead. So how did this happen? So I started to ask around family. Turns out I knew this part. My grandmother taught at a American college for girls in Istanbul, which was then known as Constantinople, in 1900. And so that got me looking into how come she went over there, and she was she was very active in her congregational church. I found out they were very, very involved in foreign missions. And, you know, I'd written a book about with my husband, Jerry Colby, about the uh, involvement of fundamentalist missionaries in Latin America, but I didn't even realize that my grandmother was a missionary educator in Turkey at the turn of the century. And then I got into the archives of the American College for Girls that were then in New York, and as I was waiting for some boxes of documents, I started to peruse the uh, the library, and I saw this book, The Berlin to Baghdad Railway, and I'm thinking, what is this doing in a missionary library? And then I went into it. Oh, my God. It, it was a great revelation. And if you study that railway, it is now being recognized by historians as a major factor in the beginning of World War One, because the Germans were moving to the east, and they were getting through this railroad, and they were getting, as far as the British were concerned, dangerously close to British oil holdings in Iran. Yeah. We we are speaking with Charlotte Dennett, whose terrific new book is called The Crash of Flight 3804, A Lost Spy, A Daughter's Quest, and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil, uh, which lays out the role of oil and pipelines not only in World War I, but World War II, and Syria, and Yemen, and Crimea, and Lebanon, and Gaza, and uh, endless conflicts. Uh, I wanted to ask particularly, uh, Charlotte, about uh, where Auschwitz comes up in your book, uh, in con- in connection with Saudi Arabia, yes, and uh, I have to uh, I have to credit my husband Jerry Colby for uh, exploring this aspect because uh, we were both working on a, a different version of this book earlier, and he he was uh, having some German background. He was very concerned. He always wanted to understand the Holocaust and how it happened. So we began to look at the relationship between the uh, decision not to bomb the camps, that was in uh, 1943, and what was going on uh, in the Middle East. And what was going on uh, was uh, the U.S. was heavily uh, involved with uh, King Ibn Saud of Saudi Arabia. 
and uh, the oil had been discovered in great commercial quantities in the late 30s. And by 43, uh, they were already starting to look at the pipeline that was going to carry this oil to Europe. And uh, Ibn Saud made it very clear to American diplomats and spies that he did not appreciate um, having uh, Jews uh, escaping to Palestine. He, he, uh, he didn't want that, and he said that uh, U.S. oil interests would be threatened if this was allowed to go through. And so he became a very consistent factor right on up through uh, 47, and then 48, the State of Israel was created. But that, that was a major reason why more Jews were not rescued and um, allowed into Palestine. Yeah, very, very disturbing. Um, have Have you noticed, Charlotte Dennett, that that politicians don't always lie about this anymore about the role of oil and pipelines? I mean, I've in recent months I've seen Donald Trump say U.S. troops must be kept in Syria to get the oil, just openly, no shame. I've I've seen uh, uh, John Bolton say we need a coup in Venezuela so that U.S. oil companies can get a hold of Venezuelan oil, just openly, without without any hesitation. Uh, we've seen Mike Pompeo talking about uh, the ability to exploit the the Arctic for oil as the as the oil melts the ice and, and to get more oil out of there with which to melt more ice and conquer more of the Arctic. I, I mean, just just madness that used to be sort of uh, shameful. It had to be whispered about, denounced as conspiracy theories. <laughs> yeah, but then you have to look at who these individuals are. Uh, they're not part of the neoliberal uh, group that has commanded uh, access and control over oil for most of the last century and on into this century. Uh, the leading uh, family of that was the Rockefellers. Right? They're, they're, they were just preeminent. And because of their long involvement in uh, oil, it, I mean, they, they literally develop, developed their own empires of oil, both in Latin America and the Middle East and, and beyond. So they had a head start, and oftentimes when you see developing com- countries looking for who they want to develop their oil, it's usually the majors, you know, ExxonMobil, uh, Chevron, which used to be part of uh, Standard Oil of California that got the oil of Saudi Arabia, and so, and BP and Shell, uh, those are the majors that usually get the contracts, and there's a, a bunch of junior folks. Uh, that would include Bush, Trump, Bolton, the neocons. I mean, uh, this is a theory of mine. I, I can't say that I've totally proven it and would welcome more research into it. But it seems to me that um, the wannabes wanted to get in, that they, they always sort of missed out on the major contracts. And I do, I have charted in the book how the neocons have been scheming to get get in on the oil bonanza of the Middle East. Uh, as, as early as 1989, uh, when they were not in power, uh, and that would have been uh, Cheney and Wolfowitz, they did a defense planning uh, gu- uh, guidance that, that 
gave them an excuse for sort of preemptive uh, wars. Uh, look what happened in Iraq. And then you can see them do the project for a new American century, and that was in 1997. By 2001, uh, the secretary... Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill said that invading Iraq was the first thing on the agenda once Bush came in, and this was like nine months before 9-11. And then uh, Cheney was setting up his National Energy Policy Group in 2001, uh, and then in 2003, uh, NATO Secretary General uh, William Clark tells the story about how he had talked with a Pentagon person who said that uh, the plan was to invade seven countries in five years. These were all part of the neoconservative uh, factor. And uh, so they wanted to get in on it. And to some degree, uh, they succeeded. Yeah. Um, Charlotte, uh, I feel uh, obliged to mention that your your brother who wrote the introduction to this book is a well-known author of philosophical books about uh, consciousness and evolution uh, named uh, named Daniel Dennett as your as your father was named Daniel Dennett what uh, what does your your brother think of your investigation uh well he's um become very supportive I, i'm i'm glad to say i think he he really uh encouraged me to nail everything down as much as I could. So there have been back and forth between him and me over the years. But I think uh, once he finally saw the the final book, uh, he, he, well, for one thing, he felt comfortable in writing the foreword to it. I asked him if he would write the foreword. And, uh, and he did, and I'm delighted he did. There's another little... Uh, it's not little. There's another aspect to the story, and that's the involvement of Kim Philby, the famous uh, double agent that was a top counterintelligence officer for the British at the very time that my father was the top man for the Americans. So they had to have known each other, I figure, although I find no evidence in any of the records that they did. But their paths crossed. Uh, during the uh, early months of 1947. And uh, my brother describes uh, a, an unusual conversation that he had with one of the great old-timers of Britain's MI6 about Philby. It's in the foreword. I'll just it, throw that out there. But uh, at, at any rate, uh, yeah, he's been, he's been very delightfully supportive. And I think he was kind of blown away <laughs> when I uh, told my family that I had received this call from the CIA inviting us all down to uh, Langley, Virginia, to participate in the ceremony in front of the wall. And uh, it, frankly, it was very moving. I, I mean, it, it just was. I, I'd never been inside the the, the headquarters. And... Uh, well, it's quite an experience. I, I describe that in the book, too. Yeah, I've, I've protested outside uh, quite a few times. Haven't, yeah, haven't, right. haven't been inside. Um, yeah, well, uh, uh, and it's, it's very large. And by the way, they have, a, they have a museum in there. It's not the one that people can see on the outside. It's an internal museum. And uh, that was interesting. Um, 
there are a lot of historical descriptions in there, and some they actually mention some of their failures, also some of what they consider great victories, like the Osama bin Laden's capture. That's a big display there. Um, and they have a coffee shop, and they have uh, coffee cups and T-shirts. Anyway, it, it, it was... Uh, and, quite a remarkable and, experience. And, and t- but, but I, you know, there there was an effort there. I think at one point, one of them asked why I hadn't joined uh, the CIA. <laughs> and uh, well, because I chose journalism, that's why. I mean, and so. And 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 uh, the answer was on perhaps one of the two kinds of T-shirts they have there with very conflicting messages, right? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, let's see if I can remember it. Uh, one of the messages was uh, admit nothing, deny everything, and the other one, which is uh, on the on the coffee cups, is the truth will set you free. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, little little schizophrenia with your with your morning coffee. Uh, so so Charlotte, you you you've you've spent years on this tremendous book. This is not something you you dashed off in an afternoon, uh, and it launches on this you know long schedule that's set by a publisher, right? And then everybody's told to uh, shut down their businesses and stay indoors. How's the how's the book tour doing? Yeah, well. The book tour isn't. Uh, it's been postponed. So all I can do is, is suggest that people uh, or, order the book from Chelsea Green, uh, who is the publisher. And um, it's also going to be available in ebook and audio book. It should be out by now. Its official pub date is a- April 2nd. I mean, needless to say, this was bad timing for me. It's bad timing for any author. Who comes out with a new book, and you know it's a horse race when you come out with a new book. You're you're competing against everybody else, and the publishers pay attention to which book is going to get the most sales, and then they'll throw support by it behind it. But it's it's always a difficult time for an author. You probably understand this too. Really? And uh, so then to have this happen, well, I'll tell you, I I really didn't uh, bargain for this one, but I'm trying to. Uh, turn what I call bad into good, and have a lot more radio spots and podcasts. You're the first, David. Well, I I think more people are going to listen to this online as well as via radio stations than usual, and I think more people are at home with more time, and so I don't know uh, if that will mean more sales of hard copies, but in terms of audiobooks and e-books, I think there's there's potential for a a silver lining here in in getting good books into, into more people's heads. Yep, that's right. People will read. I hope. I hope. I, I hope so too. Uh, it, it's a tremendous book. I mean, we ver- barely scratched the surface. Uh, we could go through a list of, of of countries in the Middle East and of pipelines and of wars. Uh, I, I think it 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 shatters the notion that that wars are driven by the need to to go after tyrants or spread democracy and so forth. Uh, but you know what what oddly occurred to me in reading it 
was that without all these countries fighting each other so much over the oil, they might have actually gotten more of the oil out of the ground by now. Uh, although without the wars, they would have lost a major consumer of that oil and might not have consumed it. What, what do you What do you think would have happened? Oh, who who can say? I mean, it, it's too hard to to figure out what might have been. I think we have to think about what could be. Uh, and once people become even more aware of uh, the terrible influence of oil on civilization, I mean, there are all sorts of nicknames. Um, and uh, the devil's curse, the devil's excrement, <laughs> believe me. Uh, I mean, it has caused so much harm to the countries that have it. It's a curse for them. For the people of the Middle East, they know, they know. So people wonder why they're so angry at us, because they know it's, the, it's, this, it's this precious oil that the big powers are after. So once we move out of the oil age, then hopefully we're going to have fewer wars. Will we be able to to move out of the, the oil age, leaving enough of it in the ground and under the sea uh, to, to have a habitable planet? Well... It, you have to have a world consciousness. You have to have a much higher consciousness of how our, our planet is endangered uh, because of the you know carbon fuel and and it, it it's growing. It's growing. It's a race against time. We're we're seeing these we're seeing these wars now potentially pausing uh, because of the coronavirus uh, and, and the so-called peace negotiations in Afghanistan, a ceasefire uh, in Yemen, if it if it really takes hold. Uh, but it's all sort of temporary. It's it's not a a shifting of priorities. It's just putting uh, you know the disasters on hold until they can be resumed. Uh, Will it help if people can find out what what's what the, what a major factor is behind the war on Yemen? What a major factor is behind the war on Afghanistan? Well, that is my hope, and that that was what drove me uh, to finally get this book out. It it was the the picture of the utter devastation of all those magnificent old cities in the Middle East, the terrible suffering of the people. And uh, that's what's going to do it. And maybe it's now during this time of, there has to be time of introspection, right? With this coronavirus, which has been linked to climate change as well, uh, that we have to do some very serious thinking about the survival of our species and the survival of our planet. I think it's a very important point that's being lost, I think, on most corporate media, that uh, that the devastation uh, of our Earth and of ecosystems has has helped to to create these pandemics of, of disease. Uh, and yet, uh, <laughs> having having doctors make decisions instead of uh, sociopathic politicians, uh, <laughs> ceasing to eat meat, uh, ceasing to demolish ecosystems, ceasing to use fossil fuels, these are all still crazy ideas. Uh, Demilitarizing. These are still considered crazy ideas, aren't they? Yeah, well, you know, people are not going to give up power easily. Right? We see that all around us. Um, but there is a change going on. And with the young people, let's face it, and they're our future. So we got to hope 
that they will chart the new course. That's all we can do. Well, encourage them. Well, and encourage them to read and be informed and get out there and organize. And do more than just hope. Read this book. It's called The Crash of Flight 3804, A Lost Spy, A Daughter's Quest, and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil by Charlotte Dennett, who has been our guest. Charlotte, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time. <laughs>